Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who's been dealing with drug addiction and mental health issues for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. Today's guest is Lyric Holmans, an autistic self-advocate from Texas who runs the neurodiversity lifestyle blog, Neurodivergent Rebel. That's how I found them. They are also the founder of Neurodivergent Consulting. Lyric is known as the pioneer of the Asking Autistics hashtag, where simple questions prompt open-ended responses that autistic people can easily chime in with and invites participants to engage each other in conversations related to the topic. I found Lyric through their Neurodivergent Rebel Facebook page, which is hopping with honest and raw reflections and advice from themselves and other autistic people. Even though I don't have autism in my family, one of my jobs is as a music teacher of autistic and intellectually disabled college students at Coastline College. Lyric has taught me so much about how autistic people would like to be treated in the world. Plus, Lyric and I share membership in the LGBTQ plus world as well, since I'm a lesbian and they are a non-binary person. They are an outspoken advocate for both neurodivergent and LGBTQ people, and I love it when people try to lift up traditionally marginalized voices. May they be marginalized no more. Yeah. <laughs> so warm welcome to you, Lyric. Thank you so much for being here on Safe Home. Thank you, Beth, so much for that fantastic introduction. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, me too. I've loved watching you on Facebook and you just like, tell it like it is. I love it. And the world needs that. My goodness. We're so tiptoeing around things and it's like, tell us what to do. I don't know. So I love it when people are out there just, just sharing their honest truth and you do that every single day. So thank you. Well, th thanks for being receptive so to that as an autistic person. It's kind of how I enter the room, which we'll probably get into later, but I don't know another way to be. So it's great to have people that are willing to be receptive because sometimes it doesn't go off well. I suppose sometimes, you know, in certain polite societies, they don't really want to listen to the truth, right? They, they'd rather just pretend it's not there or it's difficult sometimes to look things squarely in the eye. But that's, that's one of the gifts that autistic people bring, right? Is that truth telling that. I don't know if it's true for all autistic people, but most of the autistic people I know in my classes, they don't have that filter of, um, oh, I better not say that, or I better kind of couch that in an easier way. My students just like, tell me whatever. <laughs> is that a characteristic of all autistic people? Well, I wouldn't say all autistic people. The thing is that over time, as we age and grow, we can learn to kind of hide our natural tendencies. Uh, mm. But like, say, for example, I, I'm going to say it like it is. And, you know, when I learn that people aren't receptive to me saying things like it is, I tend to just not say anything at all because I feel like I can't engage because I can't express myself freely, uh, which, which has its own implications. You just, you know, you're, you're camouflaging, you're, you're just blending in, not, not being authentic and not able to share yourself with the world. Uh, so I, you know, if I'm natural, that reflects my experience. And I'm sure other autistic people may have different experiences because of course we're not a monolith, but uh, we, we definitely mm -hmm. can learn to hide parts of ourselves when society says, I don't like the way you communicate or either the way you express yourself, uh, which is mm -hmm. really the harm that a lot of us deal with. And it's, it's a struggle. It's a big struggle. 
And then there's a lot of masking, right? Is that what you call it? Where you just hide big pieces of yourself? Mm -hmm. Masking, camouflaging. Like I said in the intro, I teach a music class. And there was one time I'm trying to learn a Japanese flute called a fue. And we were talking about the flute. And so I brought my flute out and I tooted a few notes, but I haven't played it very long and I'm really not very good at it. But one of my students says, Beth, that was terrible. (laughs) I'm like, you're right. It was terrible. I need to practice that some more. But I just love that. I love. And they'll also say things like to their classmates, you should go on The Voice. You were the most amazing student, you know, the most amazing musician I've ever heard. And, and, you know, they, ah, I just, I just love them so much. And so I, I'm grateful for this opportunity to talk to somebody that's a little bit older, a little bit more, um, I don't know, you seem to be more researched or more, uh, I don't know, um, in tune with what's going on with you? I think I'm I'm more used to explaining things in a way that non-autistic people understand because I've practiced uh, that because uh-huh. I'm a writer. So if I write uh-huh. these things, then later I can go speak them because I've written them down. I, I process uh-huh. kind of externally. So I've done a lot of writing mm-hmm. and external processing and trying to make things make sense for people who don't mm-hmm. think like me. Uh, That's so great. Thank you so much for all your work in that. I'm sure it's difficult to dig in and make yourself so vulnerable, but I, I for one, appreciate it. And I hope our listeners will, I know they will appreciate it as well. How old were you when you were diagnosed with autism? So I didn't find out I was autistic until I was 29, mm. which was a big you know, life-changing shock because I was already you know, about to be 30, a few months shy of 30, and it completely shifted my worldview and just kind of broke my perception and understanding of everything and changed my life really mm. for the better, uh, but, but it was a roller coaster of emotions figuring that out. Mm-hmm. I bet. What made you go seek out a diagnosis? What was going on where you were like, hmm, I wonder if I'm autistic? Well, you know, at first I wasn't really looking for an autism diagnosis. I was dealing with some recurrent health issues that had come up over and over again throughout my life. Uh, and migraines and seizures and sensory issues, but I didn't know any of this was sensory issues or that any of this was neurological. Uh-huh. I was getting a lot of vertigo uh Food aversions, I just kind of stopped eating. Food stopped being appealing to me. I, my insomnia flared up. All of these problems we hear that oh, people complain wow. about with autistic kids a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the seizures, the insomnia, the digestive issues, not eating, you know, mm-hmm. anxiety spiraling. My mental health mm-hmm. was really spiraling. My self-esteem was spiraling. Everything was spiraling all at once. Uh, and I, I knew though I didn't have a language for this phenomenon, this is something that had been happening to me over and over again in my life, starting from when I was a very young person where I had this mm. skill slide. You know, I, I'm just really not okay because I just fallen into this distress, you know, state. Uh, and I was really afraid because I thought I had landed what I thought was like my dream job, my dream career in one of those hip and trendy offices. We had coffee bars and scooters, you know, all those things, all those things that they, they tell you, you, yeah, you, you think you've made it right. But it was it was really killing me because I wasn't accommodated and supported in the way I needed to be. And I didn't even understand how I needed to be supported because I didn't know I was neurodivergent. So, you know, I was trying to figure out what's wrong with my health. And so I was going to my general Mm -hmm. practitioner over and over again, trying all these different things and 
tests and diets and removing things from my diet and just like, you know, all these different like things to try to figure mm-hmm. out what's going on, why mm-hmm. all these different health issues were flaring up all of a sudden and going haywire. And, you know, eventually once the doctor and just like every time this has happened in my life, found out, oh, there's nothing physically wrong with your health. We can't mm-hmm. find a physical mm-hmm. cause. I was referred out for mental health assessment for the first time in my life to look at anxiety. And like right around that same time, I'm a former dog trainer. So I had my own dog training business for a long time. Uh, I was obsessed with animal training from a young age. So I can train Mm -hmm. any animal like duck, cat, whatever. But I don't really think that's the right way to treat animals anymore. And that could be a whole episode on its own. Uh, (laughs) So I've left that behaviorism behind. But at the time, I was really, really obsessively studying animal behavior and I came across someone who was autistic and in the field of animal behavior I came Mm. across one of their books that wasn't about autism it was talking about you know animal behavior but they talked about their autistic experience and how that kind of related to their understanding of animal behavior and as they were describing their experience of what it's like to be autistic and what their autistic thinking pattern was like. I was just like, well, that's, that, that's exactly how I think that's exactly how. And I was just, my mind was just, you know, blown open a little bit. And then, and then I was like, yeah, but no, you know, and then you, you, you kind of, you go, yes. And then you go, denial. no, 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 just too shocking, you know? So you push it away. Uh, but when I got, you know, referred out for that mental health assessment, I think it was probably maybe a month or so after that, I was like, you know, let me just ask if I have to go pay for a mental health assessment anyway, because I have crummy insurance that doesn't mm. cover mental health, mm. which is another problem in America. Yes. Don't get me started on that. I was like, let me let me see someone who knows autism. And so it came out during, you know, looking at my anxiety. And I said, hey, you know, I just want to know if autism could possibly fit too. Uh, and so we did both of those tests and I was diagnosed autistic. And with a co-occurring social anxiety, just, just diagnosis. Okay. And then a few years later, I was diagnosed with ADHD, which was a bit less shocking. <laughs> you know, before I worked with autistic students, I thought autistic people were like Rain Man. That's what I grew up with, you know, that came out when I was a teenager. So that's like, I guess people who are autistic can't really function or can't talk like typical people. But there's such a wide variety of autistic behaviors and I don't know mannerisms. And so I wonder if you hadn't considered you were autistic because you didn't fit that, I don't know, that limited view of what autistic looked like. Oh, yeah, definitely. And actually, that's kind of the thing is, you know, when I first kind of stumbled across those books by that autistic author and started reading, I went, oh, yeah, this is me. This fits me. But then when I went and Googled autism and went to like the medical narrative or the stereotypical picture that like, you know, was a little around five, six years ago. Uh, at this point, there it was much harder to find autistic voices themselves talking about autism. Mm-hmm. It was mostly all therapy providers talking about autistic children, nothing about autistic adults. And so mm-hmm. then I read it and I didn't really like you read the way it's written. And I'm like, that's not me. That's, I don't understand that. How is that me? Or you don't really quite grasp mm-hmm. what they're saying. And so when I saw the medical language or the stereotypical like autism that was portrayed everywhere, I was like, well, no, that's not really me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and, and that's so much a problem even today with representation. Like we see and think that autism is all straight white men. And, you know, the fact yes. is autistic people are a lot of us are queer. A lot of us are trans and LGBTQIA yes. and also, you know, we're, we're any race. And those who are most marginalized uh, and autistic people uh, who are 
more marginalized are often ignored or completely left out of, you know, things like the diagnostic criteria was based entirely on mm. young white men, which is and little boys, yeah. which is, you know, like the mm. rest of the mental health field. It's all very misogynistic yeah. and based on white men. Yeah. Um, and so we have the same problem in autism, too, where those of us who don't mm-hmm. fit that mold have been historically ignored mm-hmm. for a long time and still are, are ignored a, a lot today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the media, I'm thinking of Big Bang Theory. Oh, my partner likes that show. I don't dig it, but my partner loves it. I don't like it either. It's like, whatever. They're always just talking about sex. But but nowadays, that's kind of the picture of that white guy, super smart, but unable to really grasp regular everyday life. That's kind of what you you see now, Um, which might be better than Rain Man, I guess. But it's still... It's very like outside observational. So it's like you can tell it's written by someone who is interpreting autistic people's behavior. Well, he's not autistic, really. I just want to say he's not autistic, but they like make him autistic like so that they can kind of use it as a ploy to like, you know, they're making he's the butt of jokes. And so it's like there it's based on what you would like people outside of that mind would observe and you can tell there's not a lot of insight into the character's actual feelings very much. And he's kind of like a prop. A plot device and a prop but like I know my partner really loves it I think he relates a lot to the character and a lot of autistic people I know really like it because they relate to him in a lot of ways uh it's it's, you know it's 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 comedy and that's the thing with Mm -hmm. disability and marginalized people like a lot of times we are used as plot devices yeah yeah in in tv shows yeah you're the funny part of the show yeah the part of the joke which is like life it hurts yeah yeah, I'm sure. And maybe I think maybe it's becoming more common for neurodivergent people to play themselves on TV and in movies. Just barely. Just barely. Are you interested in acting at all? You know, I am a theater kid. <laughs> I, I, am yeah. a, I am a grown theater kid. Uh, I haven't done acting in a lot of years because that was one of my first burnouts, actually, was when I was oh. in theater doing a play with the community theater because I was masking on stage and then going home and masking yeah. 24-7. And that's when I really started learning about masking. It's like, oh, oh, I can do this on the stage and then I can do this at home. Oh. And it was like this, like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be awesome because I'm not going to be myself, oh. which was a terrible moment. But I, I can look back in history and go, no, don't do it. Oh, you could feel yourself. Half of you are saying, no, don't act your oh, whole no, life. Just looking back now at it. Like, oh, just looking, looking back at the now. the child I was, you know, and when I was 11 or 12, making that decision. Like, the acting on stage is fine, but maybe yeah. be yourself off the stage. Yeah. Oh, but I didn't think anybody wanted me as myself. You know, I didn't feel that myself mm. was worthy. Now, what what did that look like in school and at home? What did that look like where you weren't getting what you needed? Oh, goodness. You know, school, school, school is one of the first, I think, systems I entered where I started to feel like I wasn't incompetent because at home, things were fine. There was a lot of pressure on me to succeed and be awesome because even though I'm autistic, mm-hmm. I've got these random skills and also these weaknesses in areas that other people take for granted Mm -hmm. and so one of my skills was I taught myself to read when I was one and a half years old and I had a very advanced vocabulary and spoken complete sentences when I was like two and three whoa 
Holy cow. But that's just one skill. And that is because as another thing with autistic people is we can be very like fixated on particular interests yeah. and be we were specialists, mm-hmm. we specialize. I was obsessed with vocabulary and, and reading. And so I just wanted to know all the words. And so I was just obsessed wow. with words. And so I, that's all I was thinking about. And so I, I taught myself to read and the adults are like, Whoa, when did that happen? You mm-hmm. know, I just started reading maps in the car and reading street signs one day when I was one and a half oh, in my car seat. Just like, that's really weird. And, and so there was a lot of pressure on me because I had that one skill to be mm-hmm. exceptional in all areas and be well-rounded. Mm-hmm. And I'm not well-rounded you know, in that way. And it, it was kind of an unfair expectation put on me because they thought, oh, well, you have high vocabulary. You must understand all of these ridiculous concepts. Oh, you're reading above your reading level. Oh. You know, I was reading things that I, I could know the words, but it doesn't mean I really comprehended oh, everything I was reading right. at those right. young ages or that there weren't concepts in there that were completely, you know, going mm. over my head. Uh, and, you know, when I struggled because I was perceived as this little professor with this silver spoon in their mouth tongue mm. well actually just very you know it um it wasn't good because if I had something I couldn't do simple stuff like I couldn't stay in my chair you know sliding under my desk uh. hide, hiding from the bright lights and not able to sit still and not able to be quiet and like things that other people took for granted you know having bad mm. handwriting because I had motor control issues which is also really common mm. to sick people mm-hmm. all of these things were perceived as me not trying hard enough me mm. being difficult, me being rebellious, me being refusing yeah. things. But it's like, no, I had anxiety. Yeah. I had sensory issues. I was ADHD. I needed more movement. I was poorly regulated. And so all of these things, my needs not being met, manifested in the classroom as me not being able to be engaged or because my listening and my attention looked different than this kids around me like I didn't need to be looking at the teacher to be listening often I was drawing or fiddling with something in my hands and I'm still engaged I'm still here I just am not giving them feedback nodding smiling you know the -hmm. things that the teacher needs to tell the teacher I'm listening because that is counterproductive and distracting to me if I'm doing all that I'm probably going to fall asleep or not I'm not actually listening I'm spaced out because I'm trying to pretend I'm listening and so all of that was an issue that's really interesting I've been Noticing those kinds of posts lately, maybe on your uh, Facebook page or someone else's, I'm not sure. But yeah, some people need to not look at you in order to concentrate. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you're not paying attention. It's like it's too much information. Is that what it is to be able to look and nod and do that and pay attention is like overload? How does that feel to you? That and also... Well, there's a few things and, you know, different brains are different. I've got, you know, I'm autistic and I also have ADHD. So you know, the sensory issues means there is constant sensory input and it's hard for me to tune it out. So if I find mm-hmm. something in the in the physical realm where I'm touching something or my hand is in motion and I'm half concentrating on it, it keeps me very present because also with okay. the ADHD, the distractibility, I'm combined type one and two ADHD. So like I, I'm really good at being distracted by any kind of noise or any kind of thought that pops into my head. Mm-hmm. My brain is always floating away somewhere else because I'm very distractible and the, the distractions mm-hmm. come from within, you know, even though outside mm-hmm. things make it worse. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. you know, being able to draw at the same time, my ears are still on, but, you know, mm-hmm. instead of my mind being kind of craving more. Mm-hmm. There, there's enough to keep it busy to where it doesn't wander off and go look for more to do. Oh, uh, and oh. I need that 
And, you know, if I don't have that, it's hard for me to be engaged. Yeah. So how does it make you feel? Did this ever happen when you were a kid? Look me in the eye. Look at, (gasps) look at me. Look at me. Look at my nose. Do you get that? And do you still get that? And how does that make you feel as an autistic person? You know, it's, it's interesting because eye contact is different for everyone. But for me personally, eye contact is something that feels very intimate. And so like, I like eye contact with my partner, like my romantic partners, like staring into their eyes, like if I'm very close to them already, that's intimate and nice. And I'm looking at their faces a lot because I, I, you know, I like them. Uh, But, you know, especially if I'm with a new person or someone I don't know very well, like it feels really uncomfortable to like be staring into their eyes. You know, it's like, it's creepy. It's creepy for me. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. And it's also really distracting because like now I'm thinking too much about, you know, the eye contact and my looking instead of like, oh, is this enough eye contact? Is too much eye contact? And and, what should I be doing next? And I get wrapped up into this spiral of like thinking about other things. Uh, And, you know, when, when I was a young person, they almost trained you to do this, even if it made you uncomfortable. And it's along mm-hmm. the similar lines that, you know, we're starting to know now not to force little kids to hug adults if it makes them uncomfortable. It's a very yes, intimate experience, you know, mm-hmm. like undressing me with their eyes. Like some people I don't mm-hmm. feel comfortable being intimate like that with, but mm-hmm. it was thought of as being disrespectful to not look at people when they're talking to you. Yeah. Is that changing a bit nowadays with kids coming up now? Are they loosening that idea? You're not respecting me if you're not looking at me. Is that changing at all? It's hard to say how much in real world that's changing. Online, I see more talking about how that's yeah. not you know, great for neurodivergent kids. But, you know, I'm going to admit I stay in neurodivergent friendly spaces online because... Oh, great. You're in your bubble. I understand. I, I, I had enough of a traumatic experience of it in childhood. I'm trying to move past that trauma as an adult. Yeah. Yeah, I don't blame you. Tell me, what's the difference between neurodivergent and autistic? Oh, yeah. What's this neurodivergent word? It's kind of a new word for me. Yeah. So, okay. Talking about, you know, comparing this to the LGBTQIA plus community, you know, we've got Mm -hmm. the LGBTQIA plus umbrella or like say we have queer that they say can be an umbrella term for a lot of things. It's very similar Mm -hmm. where neurodivergent is an umbrella term for all of the different types of brains that we see, you know, autistic, ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dyspraxia, Tourette's, OCD, and hyperlexia. Mm. Uh, But like all of those different brain things are under the neurodivergent Mm. umbrella. And the other thing is, especially with autistic people, but a lot of us who are neurodivergent are neurodivergent in more than one ways. They're not just autistic. Yeah, it's really common, right? Yeah, like mm-hmm. autism and ADHD are really common overlaps. Also dyslexia, hyperlexia, which is, you know, me reading super early and having a oh. reading level comprehension. The reading comprehension was way better than my spoken comprehension. So that's oh. also really common. These differences in how we're processing incoming information via text, spoken, and also how we put out communication as well, these differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're kind of all over the place. OCD is also really common in autistic people. And so it all kind of overlaps. And so it's really hard for me because I am neurodivergent in at least three, possibly more ways, but you know, three that I can say are confirmed mm-hmm. that it's very hard to separate out where one neurotype I've got and another neurotype that <sighs> overlays it 
begins and the other one stops. Like I can see where I get pieces from all of these different things, but really all of the medical labels, you know, autism, dyslexia, dyscalculia are labels that similarly like Sheldon are, are based on external observations of people oh. whose brains work differently and oh. usually how we're struggling in systems that are in society, education systems, you know, dyslexia, hyperlexia, yeah. all these things talking about struggling in educational environments is where we start yeah. to have those conversations. And and all of those labels really are pathologies in the medical world, right? But mm-hmm. in, if we could look at them differently, they're not they're not pathological, they're just differences, right? There And some of the differences are extremely valuable. I mean, I can see that in my students. They see things and experience the world in such a different way. And it's not wrong or bad. It's just different. And I think neurotypical people can learn a lot from neurodiverse people. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the thing is with the medical lens that we're painted with as neurodivergent it only looks at our deficits. It only looks at our weaknesses and only looks at how we struggle. And it mm-hmm. doesn't look at our strengths, the, the good parts, you know, the, the ways in which we succeed. And there's usually not even a picture for what success mm-hmm. as a person with ADHD or with autistic person. Mm-hmm. We don't have pictures for what success looks like. Mm-hmm. We only talk about when they're struggling because when we're struggling is when we get diagnosed. And then we get help because oh. we have to reach crisis point, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And so we don't look at the strengths. And then we have things painted as weaknesses that are neither strengths nor weaknesses. Like, for example, my tendency to obsess over things and to fixate and not be mm-hmm. able to let things go mm-hmm. sometimes sucks. I will admit it, especially if I get fixated on something that's a problem I can't solve because I can't let go of a problem oh. until I solve it. And so that's why I'm a really good problem solver. It's a good skill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it drives me up the wall sometimes because I can't let things go, but it is also my biggest skill. So it's gotcha. not a strength or a weakness. It's just a really key part of my personality and who I am. But in the diagnostic mm-hmm. manual, it's only spoken of as a weakness. There, there's no, there's no gray. It's a very black and white. It's very binary. Yes. <laughs> and as a non-binary person, I'm like, burn the binary down. <laughs> All directions. Yeah. There's so many binaries in this world, right? God dang, if we can just make things more, um, more on a spectrum or more gray, there's a lot more gray than just black and white. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you, do you watch the amazing race by chance? I have not seen that. Okay. Well, I love the amazing race and there's this couple on there that I watched the Holderness family and the husband has ADHD and he is just such an advocate for ADHD because in this game, it's like this big scavenger hunt around the world. He uses his, his hyper-focus to totally nail these challenges. Mm. And he talks so openly about it. I'm like, go, go, go. That is so awesome. Because I think when people hear about ADHD, they're like, oh, geez, there's such a pain in the neck in the classroom. And oh, they're running around. They can't concentrate. Blah, blah, blah. But if you give somebody with ADHD something they really want to focus on, mm-hmm. there's no stopping them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can I- be a real superpower. And, and, you know, that that's the thing. It's a blessing and a curse because especially in school, it's like it's really a curse when I need to be able to conform into society's expectations yeah. or need to act non-autistic or neurotypical, non-ADHD. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I literally like could not focus or absorb information on topics that didn't interest me in school. 
So especially the way history is taught here in Texas, things like that, it didn't interest me. It was like, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, it wouldn't sink in. It was like in one ear, out the other. It didn't matter. It couldn't stick to my head. But if I'm left to study something I'm actually interested in, I'm actually passionate about, mm -hmm. like I, I, I will learn ridiculously silly, small, random facts that probably are very little yeah. consequence. I will learn all the details if I'm engaged, yeah. but I can't force myself to be engaged with something that doesn't engage me. And so that's hard because other yeah. people seem to be able to absorb information that doesn't interest them. And I don't even know how they could do such a thing. <laughs> I suppose that. Yeah, I, I've forced myself to learn stuff for my schooling. Yeah, but I can I can understand where you would run into a brick wall and just like, nope, it's not going in, not staying in there at all. You can read it Dumping over right back and out. over and over and over again and keep reading the same uh, thing over and over again. And it's like, I've read this 40 times. And if you <laughs> quiz me on it, I can't tell you what I've read. Wow. I bet you just really stumped your teachers because you were probably considered like this genius that wasn't trying hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. That that's really it in a nutshell. But yeah, I wouldn't say genius, but I would say, you know, I, I spent time in gifted and talented. I spent time in special oh, education yeah. and I spent time in mainstream uh, classroom and none of it was right well, for me. None of it was right for me. Yeah. And most of the time I was thought of as a, the teachers would describe me as a smart, gifted kid that does not apply themselves or is apply stubborn yes. or rebellious, um, uh, you know, no, no understands, you know, the work cannot show their work, will not show the work, you know, all of these different things, um, which, you know, we're just, you know, mm. not having a, a typewriter yet or not having a keyboard to type because the motor control in my hands was oh. physically painful to write with a pencil still is physically painful to write with a pencil. Really? So, but if you had had a typewriter or a computer keyboard, that would have solved a lot of that. Issue. Yeah. Eventually they figured that out. That was one of the first accommodations I got, even though I didn't have an IEP because my teacher couldn't read my papers. They didn't want to read my papers that I was allowed to type my final draft okay. uh, in okay. elementary school. So I had, you know, old fashioned typewriter, really, you know, no erasing, terrible, uh, but it was better for me oh, wow. writing and quicker. Oh, wow. uh, and then I had an old crappy used laptop, you know, for a while. And I was allowed to take that to school and type. And once I could type my notes and type things up, like it, I, I began to excel a lot better just having that piece of technology uh, wow. because the pencil to the pen without the keyboard was such an obstacle to me. It, you know, it made, uh -huh. it made me really not able to enjoy the environment because I was too busy, you know, with the, the obstacle of not being able to get my notes down because I couldn't keep it in my head either. <laughs> oh gosh. And now look at you, you're a writer <laughs> doing such amazing things. How, how was your family? Like they get these report cards from, you know, coming home and you're, they're like, what is going on? Were they supportive of you? Were they advocating for you or were they, giving up on you? What was going on there at home? Oh, gosh. Okay. I, I still have some of those report cards. <laughs> I still have some. Oh, of those. I would love to see that. Uh, I wish I had them handy right now, but we've just moved and everything's shuffled around. Uh, but, you know, and I also have some of the, the notes that were sent back and forth from the school, too. Uh, so, mm. you know, I would get these report cards and they had those conduct and citizenship reports that it was like I's and S's for handwriting oh, and, yes. you know, works neatly and all of these things. Like, and I would have terrible marks and all of those things, mm -hmm. you know, and it was like my, my family didn't understand why I was being, you know, troublesome at school mm -hmm. because they didn't know me to be a 
disrespectful child. I was definitely a Mm -hmm. strong-willed child, uh, but that wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily a bad thing in our home. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, one thing I do remember, and this is like a thing, oh, I have notes from the school too, is, you know, the school trying to come to my family to tell them that they thought I had something going on with me, that there might be a learning disability or something. And this was Uh probably second, maybe third grade. Uh And I have a type note, a copy of a type note that was like sent to the school saying they, they, they do not want to test me for learning disabilities because they had to put it in writing for the school. The school asked them to put it in writing. But I remember before that note was typed up being, you know, sitting in the office outside as my mom is like freaking out, like, there's nothing wrong with that child. How dare you? Yeah. You know, because they approached it as like something wrong with me. Yeah. So, cause your mom's like, uh, she's read since she was two. How dare you tell me there's something wrong with my child? I bet I can imagine a parent would feel defensive at that. Oh, yeah. So do you feel like you kind of missed the boat there? Like if they would have signed you up for learning disability testing that maybe they would have caught something or? I don't know. You know, my grandma did put me in tutoring to help with some of the things outside mm-hmm. of school because I did spend time in special education anyway just you know even though we didn't end up doing that testing a few different times Mm -hmm. in my educational career and I really did not like being in the special education classroom like I it could be better now but you weren't treated with respect Mm -hmm. and decency there's a different way you're treated when you're in the special education classroom not just by the adults around you but also by the other students and it was feeling segregated. I wanted to be included. I wanted to be just like all the other kids. I I didn't want to go to a special classroom or, or, you know, do any of those things. So I I don't know, like looking and looking at how bad autistic people were treated and that the main thing they wanted to look at was the ADHD back then. You know, it probably just would have medicated me. Oh, okay. And I'm not against medication, but I was uh-huh. very young and I, I feel like with children, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have wanted to be medicated as a first grader uh-huh. when I was five or six. Yeah. They probably would have made you a zombie, right? You know, who knows? I, I can't, I can't say, you know, uh-huh. I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I just, I, my, I had a friend who was medicated around the same time and they're, they are mm-hmm. ADHD, but they regret not starting later when they were older and had more consent over it because they had a very hard time getting off those medications when they wanted to. Oh, I bet. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Especially if you started so young. Wow. Yeah. Now, how does your non-binary gender intersect with your autism? Oh my gosh, in many ways. Uh, and that was like the one of the big things that was like glaring me in the face after I found out I was autistic. And I started realizing how much of my life and my identity was built upon the expectations of other people and neurotypical society around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was being and doing things that I thought were expected of me, trying not to make too many waves, trying mm-hmm. to blend in. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't being myself. And then I started realizing that that is really what literally what was making me sick was all of that pressure to be someone and something I wasn't was just eating away at Uh my self-esteem. It was exhausting, Mm -hmm. you know, acting 
24-7. Yeah. Acting is yeah, work. Yeah, it's a yeah. job. And, you know, you're, I'm, it's literally acting Seriously. every time I went out in public. Uh, and mm. so it was just so exhausting and I was so worn out for it. And I realized, like, I was losing the skills and the ability to keep all of that up. I, You know, I couldn't keep mm. doing it. And so yeah. I started asking myself, like, when I did any decision, is this something I'm doing because I really want to do this? Or am I doing this because I think it's expected of me or because of the expectations of other people? And, and that really changed my life because, you know, I started to be more authentic as an autistic and neurodivergent person. And then, you know, also as that math started to fall away and I started to really get back in touch with who I really was, that, that gender question was just staring me in the face because I realized okay. how how much of my like you know behavior in society trying to hold myself up to the assignment I had been given, my gender assignment, mm-hmm. that role, like what I thought people in my mm-hmm. job, my role that I was given were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't you know, I was like, okay, this is this is what people of my assigned gender do. So that's what I've got to do. Even if I don't like it, even if I don't feel it, even if it feels fake and authentic, even if it feels like I'm living a lie, I've just got to do it because that's just what we do. And I, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Why, why am I going to shed all of the fakeness in one yeah. aspect and keep it in another aspect? Yeah. It's interesting. I just had an interview with Lona Curry. I think it's um, episode 29. And a similar thing happened to him. He was addicted to substances. So that was his journey to figure that out. And then as soon as he did that, he was able to go, oh, I guess, I guess uh, I need to deal with this gender thing now. So, so he's a trans man now, but he wasn't able to deal with that until he recovered from the substances. So for you, it was like getting a hold of, oh, I'm autistic and have ADHD and I'm neurodivergent and I have to live my whole authentic self. And then you're like, oh, there's this whole gender piece that is part of my authentic self. It's very similar. Maybe for people that aren't familiar with that word or that don't really understand what it means, can you explain what it means to be non-binary? Yeah. So, you know, we, we generally understand that gender is a social construct and a social identity. And your gender is determined by how you feel, not, you know, your parts or anything of that nature. And so there are genders that are, you know, we think that was traditionally man and woman are the two, only two options that white cis heteronormative mm-hmm. society has. But historically, we've had genders outside of masculine mm-hmm. and feminine, outside of male and female. And non-binary is a gender identity that identifies as neither male nor female. And this includes, it's an umbrella, again, as we talked about umbrellas earlier, gender fluid and a bunch of other gender identities where, you know, you may feel, you know, somewhere in between or neither or, you know, a fluid flex of, of gender feelings because gender gender is very complicated, it, you know, and it's a complicated mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, I, I grew up knowing I was definitely not a girl. When you would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd say a cat. <laughs> Because I couldn't picture myself as a human woman adult, which was what I was supposed to do. You know, I couldn't picture it. And so, you know, I I didn't have a vocabulary for non-binary. I knew trans people growing up. I grew up in a hair salon. I grew up around LGBTQI queer people. A gay man taught me how to do my makeup. So I knew makeup wasn't just for women. And I I knew trans people existed. 
because that was just normal to me. Okay, no, no big deal. Uh-huh. But I didn't okay. know there was a non-binary option. I, I yeah. you know, I didn't know that was an option. And I started to become more aware as I got into the autistic community because, you know, as I teased out a little bit, there's so many autistic people that are also LGBTQIA plus and a lot of neurodivergent people because we don't tend to fit neatly into society's expectations and roles, whether they are gender roles or other kinds of roles. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I started to come into contact with more trans people, lots of them, and more non-binary people. And, you know, during lockdown, getting ready to go on a tour, and I was had a flight book every month, March through November, and I was getting ready to kick that off. And, you know, March, March 29th was the first flight out on my birthday. And, uh, that, oh, dang it. <laughs> and then the tour canceled. I watched them cancel one by one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's okay. Was this a tour for your company or? Uh, I was working in-house in another HR and consulting firm, not my own oh, at the okay. time. Uh, and we were launching a neurodiversity training initiative and I was going to be leading oh. that. And so I had, you know, booked a oh. bunch of speaking gigs and clients and people I would be talking to at conferences and universities and things all over the country. Uh, and so, but it's okay. It was, it was a great year in retrospect, despite all of the things that happened because, you know, I got laid off and then I was forced to build my own company and start over building my mm-hmm. own neurodiversity initiative from scratch because everything changed and I was forced into a situation I wouldn't have pushed myself into. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, But so you do a lot of consulting online, right? uh, With Zoom, you know, with Zoom or, you know, I don't don't have to go in person anymore because now people are more open to it. Uh, But during, you know, during, during lockdown, I'm sitting alone with my computer and laid off and all of these things. And with TikTok and, listening to other queer people and got sucked in a TikTok hole and was like, oh my gosh, non-binary, gender fluid. Oh my gosh, this this is my experience. There's a word for it. And then it was like, well, once I knew what it was, like I couldn't continue pretending I was something else anymore. Oh, so this is really pretty recent then. Very recent. Yeah. Yeah. Like Like I always knew I was, you know, trans in some way like cause there's that no because you know you have that gender dysphoria like uh, not all trans people have gender dysphoria but i did starting from when i was four or five years old i've had you know had it mm-hmm. off and on off my life it comes it goes it things trigger it you know and i used to try really hard to just block it out which is blocking out my feelings which mm-hmm. wasn't helpful uh, and it's always going to come back because it's like, hey, I'm still here. You still haven't dealt with why I'm here. You know, so I had to deal with it. Uh, and right uh-huh. now it's it's gone away and it's doing really well. And I hope it stays that way. Knock on Yay. some wood. <laughs> wow, that's so great. So um, how do you like it when people refer to you as she? And I, I've done it myself. I'm so sorry. I tripped up to. and then I, that I don't mean to. And then I fix it as soon as I remember, or as soon as I catch myself, but our culture is trying to learn how to refer to people as they and them when they ask for that. How does that feel for you when we goof it up? And, you know, how important is it for you to have the correct pronouns? You know, for me, personally, I understand the human difficulty of making a mistake, because, you know, we we don't mean to. And what matters to me is that I know that you weren't doing this intentionally to be hurtful. Uh, you know how you're really quickly, you correct yourself and we move on like mm-hmm. that. 
you know, matters and versus someone who is intentionally doing it to be nasty. Yes. That's a very different wound, a pain or someone is yes. invalidating you on purpose. Yeah. So that that's very different because even people close to me aren't always getting it right, but they're trying and the, or some of them are trying. The ones that are trying, like that makes my heart feel good <laughs> because there was that effort being made to say, I respect you. Even if you don't understand, you, you respect that mm-hmm. this is my experience. Yeah. And, and that means so much, but I'm in Texas. So yes, ma'am. And no, sir. It's been pounded into everyone. So I know no matter what, I'm going to get a yes, ma'am everywhere I go with anyone I don't know. And you just, I'm trying to learn to laugh it off and think, okay, you're wrong. How wrong you are, because I can't spend all my energy correcting every single stranger I meet like it's not worth it to me like I've got to pick my battles and you know I can wear my pronoun pin and it's people are still gonna get wrong sometimes I wear my pronoun pin and people are gonna man me even more just to be contrary yeah 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 just to put it in your face yeah they don't believe in it or whatever Mm -hmm. whatever yeah I'm on a bunch of parenting groups and I I hear all the time parents saying all of my kids' friends are becoming non-binary. Is this trend and what's going on? And and I, I feel, tell me if you think this is true. I think that everybody is much more nuanced than just male, female, and that eventually maybe gender will disappear altogether and it will just not be a thing. But for right now, our language, our whole culture is built on these two genders. And so we're kind of at this place where we're trying to broaden the definition and so the parents are flipping out. I'm like, whatever, it's okay. <laughs> well, you know, the, the ironic thing about this is actually, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, the gender binary is the newer concept, you know? Oh, right, right. Because historically there have been people that are kind of in between or two-spirit or there's all sorts of different ways people have represented. There, there's, a, there's a lot. Every country. And that's because like we've got colonialism and exporting that belief of there's only one man and one woman going continent to continent, erasing and actually committing genocide on queer people Uh, Yeah, all over the world, erasing queer identities. So like we've literally been erased. And now those of us who have been in hiding for a lot of years, we've always been here. We've just not been named or kind of been ignored or swept under the rug now we're we're speaking up and the young people i'm so impressed by the young people right now just in general Mm -hmm. because the young people really do they know who they are they really do yeah it seems like this young generation the ones that are in like elementary school junior high right now they get it they're like this is not important which box do I have to fit in? This is not important to me. I just need to be who I am. And you guys just have to deal with it. <laughs> They're much better than, than I was when I was a kid. I mean, I had no idea. I'm 53, but it was never brought up at all. So you're 20 years younger than me or, or so. I don't know. And uh, I'm sure you had a different experience, but it's getting better. I think it's getting better. Yeah? I hope so. I, th- I think so. Yeah. The future generations give me a lot of hope. Yeah. You know, there was a non-binary actor playing a non-binary role in West Side Story. Oh, really? In the new one? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, exciting. in the new one. I can't remember their name in the play. Gosh, I should know that. It's the tomboy role, and it, it was played by a non-binary actor. So I was like, oh, that's yay. that's cool. 
I'll not have to check it's that coming. out now. It's coming. <laughs> I yeah. keep seeing more and more things with non-binary actors in them. So that's really exciting. We're getting our, our time getting and the conversations are yeah. happening. But it may, when, when you have these conversations, it also makes the bigots angrier. Yes, it, it draws it up. Yeah, it does. Well, let's, let's start to wrap up, but I want to know what would be your piece of advice for parents. If they have a kid that's neurodivergent or gender fluid or gender something, what would be your best advice for them? What would you want them to do for their kids? You know, the number one thing so important is to listen and be an ally and really come with curiosity and assume good intentions mm-hmm. even if you don't understand mm-hmm. like if you don't understand yourself you know try to learn try to educate yourself because i am out educating the world because i think it is so exhausting to be misunderstood yes. and the labor of having to just educate people on your very existence how mm-hmm. you think it's tiresome Mm -hmm. because so many people don't understand. So Mm -hmm. go and seek to understand because that will let someone be seen. We need to be understood to really be loved and for who we are, the whole person. Yeah. I love that. And just the curiosity and uh, our kids aren't broken. They, They just might be different than what we're used to or the way we are. So go figure it out. Yeah. Well, thank you for educating us and for bringing your whole self to us today. It's been really wonderful getting to know you. I wish you all the best as you continue working as a consultant and as a writer and a Facebook, TikTok personality. You're just doing awesome (laughs) out in the world. I love it. Thank you all for listening and supporting Safe Home Podcast. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoy all these various guests we've been bringing on. Hopefully Joey will be able to be back with us someday. He's still struggling and relapse and, but he sends his love and he really wants to get back with us eventually. And please find us on social on all the places and support us on Patreon. If you're interested in available to do so, patreon.com slash safe home. So thanks again, Lyric for being with us. Yeah. And Lyric and I want you all to stay Stay safe. safe.